Now, if you're in this room, you have self-selected to be interested of, into the intersection between business and our future. You've self-selected. So let me accelerate the intimacy between us, if that's all right. Raise your hand if you're concerned about, for example, the climate emergency, loss of biodiversity, plastics in the ocean, unsustainable agriculture, all of these issues. Raise your hand. Okay, great. Pretty much all of us. Now, raise your hand if at the same time right now, you're a little bit perplexed because you see economic headwinds, you see downward pressure on the stock market, you see you know, talk of inflation, and you're seeing you know, business in, to some degree being paralyzed. Raise your hand if you're concerned about that at the same time. Okay, now raise your hand if you're concerned about the future and concerned about business at the same time. Raise both hands. And this is the roller coaster we're on. I mean, it's absolutely mad. I think this moment of time is absolutely unique because we have all of this expectation from all stakeholders in and around business at the same time that we have almost this caution, this reticence creeping into business because everyone's worried about the bottom line. And so I want to share with you a way that we can solve for this together. And I want to explain a couple of things. Firstly, my company, We First, is based in Los Angeles. And for the last 13 years, we've been doing brand work, ESG work, culture building work, and impact storytelling work for startups, purpose leaders, and very complex global enterprises. And I share that because there is not one thing I'm sharing with you today that isn't practical. Yes, I've written a book. It's not thought leadership. It's not abstract ideas. Everything I'm sharing with you today is what we are talking about with the founders, with the SLTs, with the ELTs of these companies. So I wanted to set that as context. And with this in mind, I think given the circumstance that we've all identified with, leadership has come into question. How we lead is really going to determine you know, what our future is going to look like. And it's more important than ever, but it's never been more in need of redefinition, reinvention, re-engineering. Raise your hand if you think that we are moving far enough, fast enough to meet the challenges we face with equal force. Right? We're not. We're not getting there far enough. We're simply not getting there fast enough. And I want to talk about where it needs to start. It needs to start with mindsets. It needs to start with how we even think about solving for the problem. Why? If we approach new goals, new solutions, whether it's impact solutions, ESG solutions, internal culture solutions, brand launch solutions, with the same mindset that we've used in the past, we're going to get the same behavior because your mindset drives behavior. Instead, we need new mindsets if we're going to achieve new goals. W would you say that's fair? Because what we're doing right now isn't working. And so with that in mind, I'm going to share with you three mindsets that are literally being sort of animated inside you know, the pattern recognition I see across ELTs, SLTs, and, and dynamic founders right now. And this is the first. Leadership will be defined by your ability to manage through multiple crises at once. Just think about this. In the last two and a half years that we all went through, do you remember February of 2020, how gloriously expansive the world and the future was? If, if you told us what was coming, nobody would have believed it. Yet since then, we've gone through COVID, the variants, 
the tragic murder of George Floyd and more, and the Black Lives Matter protests all around the world. We've gone from global supply chain, we've gone through the war in Ukraine, now inflation, recession. I don't know what you feel like, but my experience of the last two and a half years has been like constantly being battered from side to side, where just when you feel like you've got solid ground under your feet, you're knocked sideways again. Any entrepreneurs in the room? Has anyone else felt that, right? It's been like, oh my God, make it stop. Just let it stay for when you're always like, oh my God. So this is not like some aspiration where you think, well, listen, we just gotta be prepared for multiple crises. This is an active intention that you bring into your leadership team. This is where you say, all right, the new normal, for want of a better phrase, is going to be a series of compounding crises on an ongoing basis, and how do we prepare for that? And let me give you some context. COVID-19 ended business as usual in a literal sense. You know, we send all our folks home and so on. But it also ended the way that business shows up in the world. Because as you recall, people re-engineered their supply chains at apparel companies and made PPE equipment. It was Dyson and Tesla that re-engineered their supply chain and made ventilators. We all sent our employees home. Restaurants were making meals for medical practitioners and first responders. Your customers can't unsee that. They have seen your ability to show up in a crisis management capacity. Would you say that's fair? You can't treat them the way that you treat them before. You treated them before. And if you want any evidence of that, look at how we're all challenged to look after the whole human being of our employees now, correct? Their mental health and well-being, flexibility with work and so on. This is all a consequence of what was unlocked after COVID-19. Meanwhile, all of these other issues are destabilizing our business landscape as we speak. The war in Ukraine persists. Also, you've got global supply chain issues and a pushback against globalization and so on. And in addition to that, according to the sixth assessment, the IPCC report and all of its updates, and COP 2017 and COP 15, the biodiversity conference, we are currently on track for 2.7 degrees rise in global temperature. 2.7 as opposed to the 1.5 that we're headed for. So my larger point here is that all of these crises are connected and compounding. And what does that mean for you in business? in terms of the opportunity for your business for both impact and growth. We need to recognize that all of these challenges aren't sitting there statically out there in the future waiting for us to arrive. They are connected and compounding and hurtling back towards us in the present, creating this hockey stick of expectation on business. Just ask yourself, in the last five years, have you seen an increase in companies talking about the good they're doing in the world? Have you? And do you feel like that's gonna level out and decrease anytime soon, or do you think it's going to increase, right? Also, it's not linear. It's not like we had COVID and it stopped, and then BLM and it stopped, and then global supply chain and it stopped. They're interconnected, so it's not linear. It's, all, you know, it's compounding in the sense that they're all building concurrently. And so you in a leadership capacity, if you're trying to launch a product, scale your business, stay relevant in this marketplace, have to find your feet like a gyroscope, your leadership team like a gyroscope inside your company as you take all these shockwaves of these various crises. And what's really interesting, you know, having been in this space for 15 years and I'm lucky enough to get to speak about it around the world and you get the, the lens of what's going in Asia and, and Europe and so on, we're shifting from the carrot to the stick phase. 
for the last five years, if you were doing good, you might get a reputational bump. Or you might attract employees because they like how you're showing up in the world. Or you might sell more product because conscious consumers are saying to you, hey, we want to buy your stuff because we like how you're showing up in the world. Would you say that's fair? You've seen that, a little bit of a bump in your business, do good, good for you, do well by doing good. What's happening now is while ESG reporting is not mandatory in the US, within the next 12 month, months, climate disclosures will be mandatory for all publicly traded companies. Why? Because there's federal and state commitments around carbon emissions and so on. But even more interesting, four out of the five parliamentary committees at the European Union voted on February 7th to approve ecocide legislation, which means corporate officers will be held criminally liable for willfully damaging the planet. And they can be prosecuted in the International Court of Justice. Kind of heavy, right? If you're screwing the planet and you know you are, you're going to go to jail, Mr. CEO, Mrs. CEO. And that's great news. If you're in business, you might go, oh no, now we're in trouble, and so on and so on and so on. But it's actually allowing executives to be the leaders they want to be, especially for publicly traded companies who too often feel the investor pressure to make money at any cost. And now they can say, I'm sorry, it is literally legislated and regulated that we have to show up in a positive way so they can be the type of leader they want to be. Does that make sense? And it's about time. At the same time, you think about the role of AI. You know, I spoke here 12 years ago when I launched my first book, We First, which is all about how brands and consumers use social media to build a better world. And at the time, there was pretty much exactly the same headlines. These are all headlines from the last two weeks. Is the internet over as we know it? What can you say on social media? How can a business talk on social media? What if a consumer says something bad about you on social media? Let's you know, regulate you know, social media out of existence. And that was when there was only Facebook. There was no TikTok, no Instagram, no Twitter, no Pinterest, or any of these things. So the whole sort of specter of AI and robotics and blockchain and so on is under question right now. Yet, here's what stakeholders are telling us. This is, you know, that bellwether of stakeholder sentiment, Elements Trust Barometer report that this year said that 58% of consumers will, base, will buy based on their beliefs and values. 60% will choose where they work based on those beliefs and values. And investors, 80% will do so. So all of these stakeholders are saying, you've got to show up differently. So the first mindset is that leadership will be defined by your ability to manage through multiple crises at once. And I don't want you to, I really want to stress this. This is not like, oh, I get that, and that's a great idea, and we should probably do that. This is a go back to the office with your team and say, what did we do when COVID hit? What was our response plan? And what did we do with BLM? And what did we do about the war in Ukraine? Let's lay out those roadmaps for how we responded, talk about what worked, what didn't work, iterate, innovate, and have a crisis response plan. Does that make sense? Because you are going to use this time and time again as something crazy happens. Like, I live in LA, or as I call it, LA Alps now. Have you seen the photos of the Alps behind LA and all snow and so on? Like, it is nuts what's going on. Extreme weather, the, the, the UN, the IPCC report states there'll be an average of 560 extreme weather events around the world annually now. At some point, we're all going to have to show up for our community, our state, whatever it might be. You need a crisis response plan 
to actually be seen to lead in this context. Mindset number two. You've got to back out of the, back out of the future, not build on the past. And let me explain what I mean. With good reason, especially when you need to be risk averse, a lot of companies will say, what worked last year, what worked last quarter, what worked in the last six months, and how do we incrementally innovate or iterate on that? Because there's some security in what worked in the past, and we're going to build on that. But the past has less to do with the future than ever. And let me explain what I mean. In the past, we used to sort of think that we had infinite resources, and they've given, you know, up and to the right growth inside business and companies more broadly, indefinitely. Now we realize we've got finite resources, a finite planet. And all of these issues that we've triggered, from climate to biodiversity issues, they're all compounding and cascading, as I said, and that's beyond our control. Meanwhile, the half-life of technology is shrinking. Half of us don't even know what AI can do. I was actually talking to a, an author two days ago, and he said he saw someone post online that a, a fellow author of his had written a book in a day using chat GPT, in a day. Anyone working on a book right now? It's a faster through line to a result. So with all of that in my technology, the challenges we put into, you know, into, into play in terms of climate and so on, the future is very, very different to the past, and it's going to be increasingly so. And let me explain what this can look like. After COVID-19, we've seen inside many, many companies, they reframe their role for their stakeholders as first responders. Has anyone codified their response plan to an emergency in this room? Raise your hand if you've codified it inside your company. There's one here. Increasingly, we're going to be asked to do this. And you might think the traditional custodians of impact or change might be government or philanthropy or nonprofits or NGOs. But because of the responsibility business has, because they're complicit in so many of these problems, but also because of how they're uniquely equipped to solve for them, as we saw with COVID-19, Next time something goes wrong, people are going to be, including your employees, what are we doing about it? What do we think about Black Lives Matter? What are we doing about the global supply chain and the fact that a shipping container went from $1,500 to $18,000? What are we going to do? We've got to show up. And if you don't show up, that information vacuum or that impact vacuum that you leave can be filled with misunderstanding or misinformation, and you can lose the employees that you care about. So we've got to really think as first responders. Secondly, there was something really interesting that happened during the war in Ukraine. It's such a tragedy on so many different fronts, but think about it. You saw Starbucks, PepsiCo, McDonald's, all of these companies step away from one of their largest marketplaces and profit centers in the world. Why? Because they had to stand up for their values. And for once, for once, values trumped value. And that has sent a very, very powerful signal to the marketplace. I mean, think about this. President Zelensky called out Mark Schneider, the CEO of Nestle, publicly in the press and said, why are you still doing business in Russia? So you've got a sitting president in a state of war calling out a CEO of a confectionery company about their behavior in the national headlines. It's extraordinary just how large and expansive this dialogue is now. And then thirdly, you know, the benchmark for what you know, corporate responsibility or citizenship looks like is constantly being elevated. Patagonia is a privately held company. And yes, when Yvonne Chouinard 
gave the ownership and income, the revenue of the company, to nonprofits committed towards climate action, what he actually said was the stakeholder, the only stakeholder is the planet. But he also guessed, yes, he got $700 million in tax credits, and there was a certain expediency to it all, and we all know these sorts of things. But by and large, it was a commitment to the planet which set a new level of expectation for everybody else out there. Who here saw that? Raise your hand if you saw that story at the time, and you were like, wow, that was kind of ballsy move. We gave away the whole company, $4 billion. So with that in mind, the question I would ask you is, think about your industry, whether you're a startup, whether you're a purpose leader, whether you're a, a complex global enterprise, and ask yourself a simple question. What will the world ask of your company in the next three to five years? What is that issue that is relevant to your supply chain, to your employees, to your customer or co consumers around the world? What is that issue that's going to come up that there's going to be an expectation that you're going to have to solve for it? And how can you be a first responder for that? Because it's not sort of arbitrary greenwashing, cause washing, just doing what everyone else is doing. You're showing up in a way that's relevant to your business. Does that make sense? And then the third mindset. Leaders today are reframing challenges as marketplace opportunities. So as scary as these headlines can be each day, there are companies that are going to solve for them, and you're going to create the next legion of billionaires and leading brands like Tesla and more. Just one example, a company that we've had great chats with is um, Air Company. It's run by an Australian, Greg, Gregory, who worked in the music business, and a Harvard PhD who, who was really specializing in carbon capture and had worked with NASA. And what they're doing is they don't look at carbon as a negative. They look at carbon as a positive. They say all of this carbon that's already up in the atmosphere, that's an asset to be leveraged. And so they're pulling carbon through ethanols into, and, and making it into products like award-winning perfumes, award-winning vodkas. And they just announced in December the first carbon-neutral jet fuel. And the five major US airlines, including JetBlue, have all signed on to use this carbon-neutral jet fuel for their own ESG commitments. So, this is just, and the company's about 40 people strong, and it's two and a half years old, but they looked at carbon and said, how can we put that to work for us? Where's the marketplace opportunity inherent within all of this? Or look in the fashion industry. Who likes spiders here? Who, who likes spiders? Put your hand up. Who doesn't like spiders? <coughs> Poor spiders. Spiders, did you know, they make six types of spider web. Did you know every different tensile strengths? So if you look at a spider web, those big arcs that go out, they're one type of spider web. And then the little loops, as they change as they go out ever wider to give it that sort of flex that makes what they do possible. Did not know that. But there's a company called Bolt Threads that decoded the DNA of spider webs and has made something called EcoSilk. And it has the same tensile properties as spider web. And now that company is working with Stella McCartney when she made the first 100% biodegradable tennis dress. So you can wear this tennis dress, do whatever you do in your tennis dress, and then you can literally throw it away into the ground, 100% biodegradable. She sees an opportunity in these new expectations in the footwear and apparel industry in terms of their responsibility. Or you look at Salesforce. We all know Salesforce. And they recognize that all of their customers, most of which are Fortune 500 companies, have to offset their carbon footprints. And rather than have them go somewhere else 
and forge different relationships with different partners, they launch the net zero carbon offset marketplace inside their own company. That way they become the partner of choice all the way through to offsetting their footprint. All of these three companies looked at the marketplace and said, wait a second, there are new expectations, new challenges, problems that are pre-existing. How do we turn that on, on its head to an advantage for us? And so with that in mind, the question I'd ask you is, given your company, your marketplace, where you sit in the, in the business landscape, what's the social or environmental problem that you're uniquely equipped to solve that can be to your advantage from a business point of view? Not how do I do good because this is a problem that's going to compromise our future, but rather how can I see something that's relevant to my skills, my company, the industry, the category, your products, identify that and say, great, we want to put that to work for our business and for our future. So here are those three key mindsets just so that you can capture them. And again, these are not aspirational, abstract thought leadership ideas. When we are working inside companies, startups, mid-size, or complex enterprises, these are the mindsets that are framing what leadership looks like. Why? Because they want their impact to drive growth for that company, given the future that we're facing. And as I said at the top, mindsets drive behavior. And if we want new behavior, we're going to have to have new mindsets and vice versa. So let's go down to the behavior level, the very tactical behavioral level. I've just released a book called Lead With We, and my big preoccupation with it was speed and scale. I've got two daughters, a 23-year-old and a 20-year-old who are in Australia right now visiting family, and they both told me they're not sure if they're going to have kids because they don't want to bring another child on the planet. Has anyone has, had a conversation like that with anyone they know? Unprecedented, right? It's like, I'm so ready to be a super annoying grandparent. So ready. Dad jokes, granddad jokes. So. I laid out this thesis in and around Lead with We based on the pattern recognition I saw over the last 13 years of work we've done at We First inside these companies. And what really struck me was the lack of connectivity between our efforts. And let me explain. If we think the world is changing far enough, fast enough, we are drinking our own Kool-Aid and we are deluded. 90% of the business world is still doing what it's always, always done especially in the global south of necessity. And think of it as a night sky, a big black night sky where everyone is kind of lining their pocket at the cost of other people on the planet. Punctuating that night sky are stars, these little points of light, which is your company and your company and your company and your company. But there's not enough stars yet to get us where we need to go, and they're not connected. And so my big preoccupation was, how do we connect our efforts so that we can compound our results and unlock the synergies between them so the connectivity between our efforts work to our advantage rather than our detriment? And so these levels, are, there's you know, five of them all the way up to transcendence at the top. I'll speak to each one, but the core thesis is this idea of a virtuous spiral of collectivized purpose in action. And I'm going to back up for a second. You've all heard of the virtuous cycle, right? Have you heard of that in business, the virtuous cycle, you do well by doing good? Kind of Unilever populated it and, and made it kind of white, quite well known. And that's like you do well and you do good and this is reciprocity going on. But again, there wasn't that connectivity that allows us to scale our efforts. And so the virtuous spiral as opposed to cycle is about connecting efforts through all the levels of business. 
So there's the first issue, which is you as an individual. And by being in this room, every one of you have self-selected to care about the future. There's no doubt about it. Then above that is you in your leadership capacity as a founder or someone who's on your leadership team at your company. Then above that, there's the company culture, all of your employees. And above that is your brand community. And above that is society, how business impacts society. And above that is the transcendent level where humanity and the planet work in harmony. And the simple formula here is to simply lead with we up through all levels. So that means you consciously choose to lead in every decision you make, whether you're in payroll, R&D, marketing, research, whatever it might be, with as many stakeholders as possible in service of the largest we, which is people on the planet. And the reason it's necessarily simple is because you've got to be able to equip anyone inside your organization to go, hey, I've got a decision to make, and I've got all these inputs, and we've got economic headwinds, and it's a really tough time, but how can I choose to lead, not wait for others, not follow anyone else, but lead with as many people as possible, not only my employees, but how can we bring in other stakeholders, competitors, nonprofits, foundations, in service of the largest number of people? And again, not just to scale your impact, but to scale your impact in a way that's going to build your business. Does this make sense? It's the connective tissue between these layers, the absence of that, which means we can't compete with the connective tissues of all the things we're doing that are causing the problems in the first place. With that in mind, let's go through each level, and I want to give you a very, very tactical example of what this looks like that you can apply to your business. So this is at an enterprise level, a brand level, startups. First example, we all know Impossible Foods, along with Beyond Meat, they're kind of you know, the two large players out there in the meat analog space. Yes, they had private equity you know, backing, substantially so, but when they came out of their gate, their purpose was nothing less than saving Earth. Their ambition was as aspirational as it can be, saving Earth. Or if you look at the other extreme, think of an energy company like Orsted, the Danish energy company. They, 12 years ago, they were the, one of the most oil and gas dependent energy companies in the world. And now they're number one on the corporate nights ranking in Europe for the most sustainable companies, and their purpose is to create a world that runs entirely on green energy. If they can make that transition, anyone can. Or a concrete example, one of the clients we worked with was Mammut in Switzerland over the last few years. And they were very self-directed in their communication. And what do I mean? Their tagline was Swiss since 1862. And there was something about it being a very elevated alpine brand. They did extraordinary avalanche equipment. They were the OG of the mountaineering space. But they realized with the glaciers melting and with the mountains you know, being challenged that their very sort of bread and butter was being threatened. They need to show up as a sustainability leader. And instead of being self-directed in the sense of Swiss since 1862, how can they reframe their purpose, their role in the world in a way that mobilizes all stakeholders to build their business with them? And so we gave them this purpose statement to create a world moved by mountains where they're celebrating their stakeholders rather than being the celebrity of their stakeholder community. We want to create a world moved by mountains, especially as they were going beyond the Swiss Alps into what they called urbaneering in Hong Kong, China, other markets that aren't traditionally associated with mountaineering. And then we define their voice and their values with that. But the larger point is how do you go from being a self-directed brand, even if you're purposeful, to being one where you're celebrating stakeholders? And so with that in mind, behavior number one, 
Leverage your purpose as an ambitious and animating force inside your company. And these aren't hollow words. It has to be ambitious, like Mission Earth with Impossible Foods. It has to be something higher order and aspirational. And it also needs to be animating. A lot of companies still will have a purpose, and there's real rigor to the process, and they'll put it on a page, and they'll put it on their collateral material, but they don't institutionalize it through rituals and traditions inside their organization. They don't keep that balloon in the air. Would you say, in the room, put your hand up if you think, even though you've got a purpose, it's hard to keep that alive given all the forces that you're facing right now, right? It's a struggle. It's a struggle. It has to be an ambitious and animating force inside the company. Number two, and again, this is a build. They're not discrete layers. They're not separate. This is a build. So for the C-suite, employees and partners at the company culture level, some examples. I've got a podcast called Lead With We, and I introduced, interviewed the head of HR at Moderna uh, a couple of months ago. And Tracy shared something really interesting. When, who's Moderna and who's Pfizer in here? Who's had Moderna shots? Raise your hand. Moderna. I'm Moderna. I've had four Moderna. Who's had Pfizer? Isn't it funny that we didn't even know what mRNA technology was all these years ago, and now we're like, oh, Moderna, Pfizer. But with that in mind, when Moderna launched the COVID-19 vaccine, they had never taken a product to market before that. This was their first product as a new company, even though they were 8 to 10 years old. They had 800 employees, and during COVID, they went to 3,000 employees during COVID. And meanwhile, they had protesters outside their offices screaming murderers to their employees when they went to work because of the whole vaccine dialogue. So talk about degree of difficulty, right? Piling on all these people, first product to market, life or death stakes, and by the way, you're a murderer. And all these PhDs and everyone working on it also had kids at home. And they also had to mask up. And they also had to teach their kids at home. So I said to her, how did you navigate this degree of difficulty, because we all had a tough time with our companies, but that's about as tough as it gets. And she said, we co-created the Moderna mindsets with our employee base. So we reached out to all of our employees and said, how do we, as a community, want to show up inside the company? And they created 12 different mindsets. And this is how you lead with we inside a company. They buy into the process because you co-create it with them. Or another example. Amazon is rightfully criticized for a number of different reasons, but one of the positive programs it has is they support some of their employees who are refugees with free legal advice you know, and, and monetary support to help them stand up their new life in this country. And so they recognize the whole human being. They recognize the larger life of that employee, and they have this program to that end. Or a B2B example. We worked with Avery Dennison, which is the largest plastics and materiality company in the US. They make every sticker on a little apple through to every FedEx label, to all the adhesives that go into apparel, through to all the bus wraps and car wraps you see out there. And they said, we've got three lines of business, 22,000 employees. People think plastic is a problem. How do, we how do we build and fortify a culture around that? And we told them that you need a singular unifying narrative to that end. And we gave them this narrative, making a material difference. Yes, they're a materiality company, but every single effort by every single employee in whatever line of business, in whatever capacity, is aggregating up to making a material difference. And now at all of their trade shows and all of their marketing, that's the container for what they do. It's making a material difference. 
And for example, we created animated films that rolled out their 20, uh, 2025 sustainability goals just for the employees. So that it kind of made it accessible what making material difference meant and what were the three goals to that end. So a very practical example. So the second behavior peculiar to company culture is escalate employee engagement by reframing culture as a co-creative opportunity. And I want to double down on this. We do a lot of culture building work for companies of 20 people up to 100,000 people. And right now it's so hard. You've got um, quiet quitting. You've got you know, uh, the great resignation. You've got what is now called conscious quitting. And you've just got the weariness that everyone feels after the last two or three years. Does anyone else in this room just want to sort of cry, have a glass of wine, and go to sleep for a weekend? Like, everyone's feeling that way. And we just keep on keeping on. And here's the shift that will make all the difference in how you keep your company culture together based on the, the literal work that we're doing inside organizations. The mistake most companies and leadership and HR officers make is they go, oh my God, people are leaving because the $5,000 more. Or they're just sick of the company and they just want to go somewhere else. Or they're leaving and they're just going to go and live in Costa Rica for three months and don't even want another job. How do we fortify our culture? What do we need to do for our employees? And that is completely the wrong question to ask. Instead, you need to say, how do I inspire every single one of our employees to build our culture together? Culture building is a shared responsibility and opportunity. And if you think suddenly, with your leadership team, with your CHRO, with your chief people officer, with you if you're a solopreneur and you're wearing all hats, what do you do? You say, OK, here is what our culture is going to be like. Here are our values. Here is our voice that we want to have in the marketplace. How do we co-create this together? And who's going to lead the charge here? And who's the, you know, the purpose ambassador? And how do we co-create the culture that we need to, to have to survive these tough economic times? And the reason that's so powerful is when you share the responsibility, everyone buys in because they're part of the process. Instead of employees sitting back like this going, what have you done for me lately? I don't have oat milk in the fridge in the kitchen. I'm gone. You know, has anyone felt some pressure from their employees of late in terms of dissatisfaction moving around? You have to make sure that they are complicit in building that culture, and therefore, they will buy into it and they will stay. So let's go up to the next level. And again, this is a build. It's an aggregate up through leadership, culture, and to community. So this is about how you work with your customers, your consumers, and communities at large. Some real-world examples. Nature needs heroes. What Timberland has done so powerfully is not only do they have their path to service volunteer program internally, where you plant trees and so on, and 82% of employees participate that, in that each year, but they've recast all of their customers as ambassadors for the purpose of the brand. And so they are saying nature needs heroes. You, wearing Timberland, are the hero. They make it about them. They are celebrating their customer rather than pointing towards themselves. And they do that with Nature Needs Heroes and also their Earth Keepers initiative. And they've got this 50 million tree planting initiative where they're mobilizing their employees and customers to get together with the brand, wear the gear, and plant the trees. So that's how they're engaging their customer base. Or if you look at Airbnb, who here stayed in an Airbnb, right? And we think they're an accommodation company, right? And you always go and look for that one locked cabinet and go, God, I wonder what's in that cabinet. You know, Airbnb is an accommodation company, 
And above and beyond that, they do restaurant guides, they do city guides, they do music guides inside any, any city. And that's because their purpose is to create a world where anyone can belong anywhere. So they're all different versions of belonging. But at the same time, they give free accommodation to Syrian refugees and right now to Ukrainian refugees at the border through their Open Homes program. They also did a famous Super Bowl spot a few years ago about inclusion and your right to love the person you want and believe whatever religion you believe and so on. Why? Because they are all expressions, equally important expressions of their core purpose, which is about universal belonging. And so this is about how you can engage stakeholders around your purpose in a way that's deeply meaningful, meaningful to them, all the way from selling product like they do with accommodation, all the way to an open homes program where they're serving people in need. And there's been such powerful stories and imagery they've been sharing of people at the airport, hosts who you know, have their homes up on Airbnb, standing there saying, I can take two people for three months. I can take six people for four months. They could not be more powerful marketing, storytelling, advocacy for universal belonging. And it's a multi-stakeholder program from the people who stay in it to the hosts who make that possible to the company that enables it. This is co-creating it with their stakeholder group. Or another example, we worked, we worked with a lot of uh, L'Oreal brands and year before last, Maybelline came to us and said, we're doing all this work around mental health with Crisis Text Line during COVID, but we're not getting any credit for it. And that's a fair question from any business because you know, if you're putting all this effort in, you wanna unlock the value to the business. And so at the enterprise level of L'Oreal, their big platform is Conscious Together. We created this platform for them called Brave Together. We launched it in 10 countries and it's now in 52 countries. And what it is, is Maybelline is not the center of gravity. Maybelline is the platform on which Crisis Text Line and a series of influencers in different markets around the world facilitate safe spaces for young people, especially women, young women, to talk about their mental health challenges in the face of social media, COVID, and everything else. And even though the beauty industry faces so many challenges in terms of ingredients, chemicals, packaging, and so on, it's created an incredibly powerful halo effect through the participation of all of these stakeholders, from the enterprise, to the brands, to the influencers, to the customers, and you know, to the mental health professionals. And they are all brave together. Is this making sense in terms of this collaborative approach to all aspects of what you're building? And so the third behavior change here is drive cultural conversations that engage external stakeholders in movements that shape culture. And this is very, very tactical. If you sit down with your marketing department on Monday, tomorrow, and you sit down and go, wow, we've got a product, and consumers are getting tighter with their spending, and how are we going to sell this thing? That's one conversation. Or if you sit down and say, what are the pain points our customer base are feeling right now? Health and wellness, beauty, whatever the category is. How can we work with others to help solve for that challenge in a way that builds resonance and relevance for our brand and we position our product within that? That's a completely different question. And not only will you resonate more deeply with people, but by bringing in those other stakeholders, you'll accelerate and expand your impact at the same time because there's more people amplifying what you're doing. And then this second highest level, society, you know, it used to be the business, I mean, I've been a marketer for 
almost 30 years, he says happily and sadly, because I'm getting old, um, 30 years, and for 20 of those years, it was about selling stuff. You know, I was a fancy creative on Nike at Wyden and Kennedy in Portland, you know, doing all the campaigns for the um, well-known athletes, doing the Olympics and World Cup. You know, it was the pinnacle of advertising and marketing, if you're a creative. But now, the purview of business is, is just enmeshed with society. Just think about the last few years, gun control, same-sex marriage, um, women's empowerment, police violence, you know, now the war in Ukraine, you know, there is no limits to the limit of business. We are enmeshed in all of these different social issues. That ship has long, long sailed. So let's look at some examples. How do you at a societal level build reputational value, brand equity, relevance for your product, and advocacy amongst your consumers? So in the US, we all know Ben and & Jerry's, and they got those funny products, right? And every time you see a funny name for a new product, you're kind of like, oh, that's cute. Oh, I wonder who thought of that. And I could have done better than that. We could have, and then you give up. At the same time, in London, you've got Tony Chocoloni. Who knows Tony Chocoloni in London? Right. They're not that well known here in the, in the States. Um, and they are equally committed to ending slavery in the cocoa supply chain. And so they came together to create this new product called Chocoloni Love Affair. Those kids at Ben and Jerry's. Love Affair. And what they've done is they've doubled down and work together and are cross-promoting in service of something larger than themselves, which is slavery in the cocoa supply chain. And I'll just notably call out, Tony Chocoloni did something two years ago which just blew my mind. They, <laughs> they went and took all of their competitors, Kit Kat, Ferrero Rocher, all of these different chocolate competitors, and they created exact replicas of their products in the packaging and everything, and then put Tony Chocoloni on top in their fonts and everything, and then they put them in Sainsbury's in the UK. Lawyers swooped in, like the night sky, like the, the day went dark with lawyers swooping in. It blew up in the press, breach of con like IP, the whole thing. And then they released another campaign saying, if we can do it, why can't you? If we can make your product without slavery in your supply chain, why can't you? And they got such a bump in terms of earned media, reputation, loyalty, advocacy, and probably a few nasty long letters, cease and desist, and so on. Another example, in the apparel industry, Prana is in LA. They're about a 35-year-old athleisure wear brand that really hangs its hat on sustainability. Does anyone else wear Prana here? All these men. No, that's great. Uh, yeah, no, it's great. And they, in, tw in December of 2019, they got all their shipment of new products, and they unpacked it all, and then they saw a mountain of poly bags. A mountain of poly bags. You've all probably experienced this depending on what product you make. And they said, well, how can, I, how can we say that we're sustainability-led and we've got all these poly bags? So they took some time and they did some work on how they can fold their apparel in ways that didn't require those poly bags for shipment and so on. And they eliminated over 10,000 poly bags within the first year. They said, well, if we can do this, why can't others do it? And they launched the Responsible Packaging Movement, RPM, which now has 170 brands involved in the apparel industry and beyond. And if you just think about the raw math, because these other companies that have joined are much larger, 170 times 10,000 poly bags all being taken out of the supply chain? Extraordinary. Simply by looking at your own business in a new way, 
to be more responsible in service of your purpose, but then scaling it by making it available to others. And now all of these companies are collaborating. Go to Prana's site and look up the responsible packaging movement, and you'll see almost 200 brands, all the brands you know, showing up differently to get plastic out of their supply chain. And then we've just finished some work with Allbirds. And one of the challenges with Allbirds is um, they had these moments that popped. By that I mean they had the world's most carbon neutral shoe that they announced. Then they announced a carbon calculator that allowed you to assess the carbon footprint of what you're buying. But once you've done those sort of singular moments, what happens when the marketplace matures and when it comes to your sustainability, it's a lot of incremental efforts now that are being laddered up rather than one tentpole moment. And so we help them define what that narrative can be when it's an aggregate of a lot of little efforts. And one expression of their commitment to something higher than themselves is the partnership they did with otherwise competitors, Adidas, to create this shoe in the first place. So think of, just take a moment for yourself. Think, think, think to yourself, what is the most unlikely competitor in your category that you would cross a room not to talk to at a trade show? Think about them. And then think about what you could do with them to work together to level up the whole industry. Your greatest competitor. And so this fourth behavior at the societal level is to really unlock speed and scale through these partnerships across sector, across your industry. And when you look, I gotta, like, when you think about it, when you look at all of these things that take on a life of their own, these brands that have these marketing campaigns that just sort of take off, have a look at the dynamics that are working. They have a purpose which is framed in terms of something higher than themselves. They are not framing themselves as the celebrity of their stakeholder community, but rather elevating others by celebrating them. And they are working with partners within their industry or across sector to accelerate and scale their efforts. How, how can you apply that to the work you're doing? And then finally, there's this highest order level that I call transcendence. And here's the funny old thing. Um, I, I wanted to deepen my relationship with the natural world at, 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 over the holidays because I cared about the space for a long time, but I didn't know how deep my relationship with the natural world was. I surfed a bit. There's a pot plant in my office. I might watch Avatar, but that was it. You know, my experience of the natural world was like this. So I went with the Pachamama Alliance to the sacred headwaters of the Amazon and spent two and a half weeks with three indigenous tribes there with you know, bathing the Amazon each day, no electricity, no water, living outside under mosquito nets and through translators talking to the elders and shaman there in the most biodiverse place on earth. And apart from how moving that is because the force of life is literally crackling in the air, we have no idea, unless you go to a place like that, just how um, visceral the life force is until you go somewhere which has nothing to do with the way that we've treated the planet. But above and beyond that, what was communicated through translators very clearly to me is this fundamental connection between nature and climate. Because what's happened up till now is for a long time climate's been the evil problem that we've all got to solve the climate crisis, tackle climate in this adversarial sense. And more recently, if you look through the lens of biodiversity and COP15 and other things, we're now going, oh, well, what about nature and biodiversity? And what they are saying is, by looking after nature, you'll help to solve climate through its inherent regenerative capacity. And by reducing your carbon emissions and reducing climate, you'll actually allow nature to be more abundant. So these two go hand in hand. So what I'm talking about here is getting nature to work to solve the climate issue 
and we work to help solve the climate issue so that nature can do its job. So how do we connect these pieces? And some examples of ways companies are showing up at this higher order transcendent level. You know, the, the uh, earthquake in Turkey was absolutely devastating. What was the final toll? Was it 50,000 people? Does anyone know? Over 50,000 people? And you just saw it unfolding after three days and these extraordinary stories of survival and so on. What happened was, as soon as the earthquake hit, the first earthquake, because they had those second round of earthquakes, um, IKEA was, reach, was connected with Better Shelters, which is an emergency relief nonprofit that provides temporary shelters for people during a crisis. And Better Shelters said to IKEA, we can't logistically get these things to Turkey fast enough because of what's happened with the earthquake, but also their limited resources. Within 24 hours, IKEA trucks were driving better shelters down to Turkey. And they're still there working as a collaboration to help those whose lives have been so dramatically affected. But there's been so much media and press coverage around this participation and how heart-led it is and how it's in service of something larger than the companies themselves, like IKEA, that it's really been animating for the brand itself. Or another example, IBM, very big, big software company. But for five years, they've been running something called Call for Code. And Call for Code is an open source competition globally where they say the most pressing issue in the world is X. This year it's sustainability, last year it was the climate crisis and so on. And they ask all developers around the world to use IBM software to solve for it. Not just with inside their company or their ecosystem, but all developers all around the world. And it has created an incredible halo effect for the brand. And it's made it deeply relevant to this ongoing sequence of challenges we're facing. And one more example. We're working with Right Here, Right Now, which is the world's largest public-private partnership around climate justice. And what happened in 2022, the International Court of Justice and the UN Commission made a really big decision, which they said, everyone has a right to a healthy, sustainable planet as a fundamental human right that can be enforced in the International Court of Justice. And so right here, right now, said how do we make climate action, climate justice, an international right, and then create awareness in and around that? So what they're doing is they're creating a global cultural ecosystem of impact. And if you look over here, you'll see, I hope you can read it, you can see tech, you can see music, they are working with the Grammys, they are working with the Oscars, they are working with AEG. And what they're doing is through the, the lens of all these different cultural access points to people, music, tech, arts, whatever it might be, they're bringing up this issue of climate justice as a human right. So what they're doing is they're reweaving the global cultural fabric around this issue at the highest order level. And so this is that transcendent level in play where we're, unless we engage stakeholders, consumers, citizens all around the world around climate action, we're not going to get to where we need to go. So let's leverage music and the arts and sports to do it. And so this fifth behavior is that you've got to course correct our future by leveraging this fundamental connection to each other and the planet. I deeply, deeply believe that we didn't come into this world to destroy the planet and hate on each other. I, I really don't believe it, despite all the headlines, despite the polarization through social media and so on. 
I think that we just need to lean into that fundamental connection that is chemically hardwired into our bodies and reanimate it as a force for change. And you might say, why is this possible now? It sounds so good that, well, wouldn't it be great if the world could do that? It's possible now because three things have come together like a, as in a way they've never seen before. We have the stakes. There is an existential crisis for humanity that is playing out on both sides of the aisle in headlines every day, which is simply hard to ignore. At the same time, we finally had the requisite coalition of stakeholders at the table because we had leadership, we had suppliers, we had customers, we had consumers, we have employees, but we didn't have the investor class. We didn't have the money. And if you don't have the money, nothing happens. And now the investor class is saying, through the lens of ESG funds and all of that is shaking out, but they're saying, if you're not set up to be sustainable in the future, we're not going to invest in you. And what's really interesting is, you know, with mandatory climate disclosures coming to US publicly traded companies, and punitive ecocide legislation coming out of Europe, because Europe's always been ahead of us in terms of sustainability, the investor class, it's going to go, it's going to go through the roof. Because you are going to be penalized in the marketplace for not showing up this way. And then thirdly, we have the story. From Davos to COP27, COP15 to the headlines every day, whatever we're doing with business with capitalism isn't working for our future. And so, I'd like you to think of Lead With We as a very, very, very simple but dynamic and flexible tool. It's a point of departure where you just go, wait a second, if I'm in business, I want to lead, I want to do it as many people as possible, I want to benefit the greatest number of people. It's a mindset. It's also a process. So if you're in payroll or R&D or innovation or a CHRO, how do we choose to lead with we at this moment so we can coalesce our company culture with our employees, et cetera? And then it's an aspiration and end state we're driving towards, where people are going, you know, this is where we want to get back to. We want to be one human family connected to a planet that is actually creating a future we can thrive in. And the key point here is, if we don't connect all of these layers, if we don't generate the necessary speed and scale to solve for our future, we're going to be reverse engineering out of a future that's going to become increasingly imperiled. And remember, this is a stack. It's not any one of these. As you go back to your company and, and think about how you move forward, especially in this sort of uncertain time with the prospect of a recession, how can you activate this lead with me mindset at all levels? So here are the three mindsets in case you haven't captured them, if anyone hasn't. And then secondly, here are the five behaviors, which are very tactical, very active. It is a prescriptive brief for you to use with your teams inside the company. And for a deeper dive, I have the book. I'm going over to the book signing in half an hour. It's uh, level C. No, it's on level three. Um, who knows? What? 10C on level three at the convention center. And I'd love you to join me. I'd love to sign a book for you. I can answer any questions you have as well as I'll be here afterwards. Also, I have a podcast. Um, it's in the top 1% of podcasts globally now. I have global CEOs on there every day, as well as really, really dynamic founders explaining how they're getting it done, how they're getting it done. We just had the global CEO of Heineken on there. Um, last week, we had Ralph Shami, who was a TED speaker last year, who was putting a dollar value on natural capital like blue whales. 
Next week we're speaking to uh, the director of the UN Foundation, and we're all through these different lenses saying, how do we get it done? How do we scale our impact? What role does business play? And it's just there free for you to use whenever you can. And if you'd like a deeper dive to apply with your team, check out leadwithwecourse.com, because it's a nine-hour course where I walk you through step-by-step step how you apply it to your business. But do know this. It's easy to feel disheartened right now if you look at the headlines. But this is not the end of something. This is the beginning of the most breathtaking renaissance in business in human history, where we are going to start to serve nature rather than steal from it. And we are going to, instead of walking by these billions of biological blueprints and squandering them, recognize the inherent wisdom in the natural world and rebuild business around it. And when we do, this will be the most meaningful years of our heart-led leadership and lives. Thank you so much. Do we have time for any questions, or are we out of time? Um, like five, ten minutes. Does anyone have a question? Who's got a question, please? And uh, this gentleman is going to run because he said he did 13,000 <laughs> steps yesterday, and that wasn't enough. <laughs> okay. Hi. Um, I just wanted to ask, uh, have you worked with an organization that had sort of grandfathered in protocols and sort of really hard to navigate, really hard to move, um, and sort of direct in this sort of spiral? How to move them in this path? Yeah. Here's how you convince a CFO or a financial officer or a leadership team that doesn't believe, doesn't buy in, and wants you to leave the room. Here's what you do. Because I've faced a few of those in my time. Um, First thing you do is you show them the research. There's three parts. Show them the research, which now is so compelling and undeniable, whether you look at Deloitte, McKinsey, Edelman, whoever you want to point to, World Economic Forum. Um, so the research showing the challenges we face and how they're going to affect their industry and how that's shifting expectations, including the investors that make their business possible. So there's the research. The second thing you do is the competitive landscape because there is no industry that isn't moving ever quicker every day in this direction because they're either being regulated or legislated or expected to do it. So show them competitors where you go, listen, this is just an FYI, but it's interesting to see what number one competitor is doing over here and what that did for them and how they're taking it to market. And then the number three thing, and this is the most important, is you do a cost-benefit analysis of doing it. So whatever you want them to do, what would it cost to do it? What, and what's the benefit of doing it in terms of reputational enhancement, culture, whatever it might be. But also, and this is the kicker, do a cost-benefit analysis of not doing it. Show them what it's going to cost them, what the risks they may expose themselves to. Because as I mentioned before, typically an information vacuum or inaction is filled with misunderstanding, misinformation, or by the time you've realized that you've created a problem, your employees have gone somewhere else, your customers have moved somewhere else, or a younger company has eaten your lunch. So do the research from sources, trusted sources, competitive landscape to unlock their competitive instinct, and a cost-benefit analysis of both, of doing it and not doing it. And if you do that, they won't necessarily just go, oh my god, you were right, let's do it now, so where do I sign? But they will go away, and I swear to god, three days later, they're like, so um, I was thinking that we should do exactly what you said, but it was my idea, or whatever it might be. And they come around very, very quickly. Because either they're saying they're ignoring the research, don't care about their competitors, or are willing to take those risks. And they're not willing to do any one of those three. 
and it finds it's, it's really, really effective. Another question. Question. This lady in the front here. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, so you mentioned uh, creating culture from within yep. and engaging with your teams to do that. Can you give us a specific example of or two of how to get that off the ground? Yeah. I mean, how do you engage employees from within? Um, I'm going to look at it from a few different vectors. One is the linear experience of an employee. Um, you have to be building culture collaboratively with your employees from the moment you are onboarding a new employee and they've got their first employee letter. Typically what companies do is they'll say, oh, we're going to hire you, we just did a Zoom call, we like you, and we don't even know if you're really good, but we just want to feed the role, let's do, fill the role, let's go. And then you'll send them a letter, they'll sign it, and then they won't hear another peep for six weeks. And then they walk into the office, probably not, they get on a Zoom call and they're like, oh my God, where am I? Instead, and we've done this work with Virgin Hotels and others, you get employees inside the company to record why they work at the company and what, is it, what is it has meant to them. And then every week in the inbox of that new employee, you'll see a film from another employee talking about why, it's important, why they like working at that company. And that's just the onboarding process. Before they've even started day one, that same mindset needs to be pulled all the way through. Who wants to be part of a purpose council or an ESG sustainability council? And how do they self-select in terms of the role that they want to play? How do you set up rituals and traditions inside the company? So it might be a quarterly all-hands meeting where senior leadership get up there and talk about their impact goals and ask any questions and so on and so on. Or it might be a yearly tradition, like Path to Service with Timberland, where everybody volunteers. But you've got to keep the cadence of um, the experience of purpose alive. And at every one of those points, it's co-creative. If you're doing strategic work with marketing or with a leadership team and you've defined your purpose, your voice, your values or something and you need to socialize that, you don't want 40,000 employees giving their input because you'll end up nowhere. What you do is you say, you know, you work out the team of the relevant voices inside the company, you have a strike team that's leading that process and then you convene employees to a feasible level and you say to them, here's the thinking we've been doing, here's the input from a wide number of stakeholders now, we'd all like you to do brainstorming sessions as to how we're going to activate that out in the world. And you'll get 100 ideas from all these different employees, and then you force rank those ideas, and then you activate against them over the next three to six months. So it's always about, in practical terms, looping in the people you want so it's co-creative, and then at every other breakpoint, letting them animate it and bring it to life and take it to market. And that whole mindset needs to be pulled all the way through from onboarding the first time you hire an employee all the way through to how you stay in contact with alumni after they've left the company. They should never feel that somehow they've shaken their responsibility to be part of the culture they're building together. And when you have that mindset, the way you approach culture absolutely transforms. Do I have time for one more question, or am I going to be thrown out? Uh, yeah, no? one more. One more, one more. Yeah, please. Okay. <laughs> Hi, thank you, Simon, for all this. Fantastic testimonial. I'm Philippe from France, and I'm yeah. very glad to see all these topics are coming in the US now. Yeah. Um, planet is burning, and we have to inform consumers before purchasing mm -hmm. products if the brand has some commitments. Yeah. Um, in Europe, we are going to have um, a digital product passport mandatory. Do you know if uh, this digital product passport is going to come in the US also to inform about the impact, durability, recyclability of the product? 
No, I mean, I think the larger point you're talking to is we consumers are complicit in all of this, but we're not equipped with the knowledge as to the damage products are doing so we can make more conscious choices. And in Europe, they're starting to equip people with information about their carbon footprint and, then, and, and digital tools to that end. My experience in the States and going to all these climate and sustainability conferences is everybody's now absolutely lost by certification whack-a-mole, where there are 40 different certifications from climate neutral to nature positive to everything else out there, and they don't know fair trade. and so They don't know what means when and how and why. So I don't hear of that coming to the States yet. And rather, we're at a moment in time where there needs to be some sort of consolidation, like there needed to be with ESG metrics, some sort of consolidation. And then the other point is brands and B Corps don't know how to tell the story of their impact to consumers at point of sale. If they've got that certification, if they've got carbon neutral, net zero, whatever it might be, they don't know how to communicate that to consumers in a way that they can understand it, care about it, or share it with others. And that's the bigger challenge I'm seeing in the States. They're all doing it, and now they're all going, what do we do with it? How do we take it to market? How do we bring it to life at point of sale? So if there's anything you're doing to that end that could come out to the States, I think it'd be hugely successful. I, uh, that's what we provide for uh, engaged brands in Europe, so I come and see you. Oh, fantastic. There's a big market here. We need it. Thank you so much to everyone. Look forward to chatting more. Come to the book signing. Um